At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 10, The Cold War in the Mediterranean, from 1945 to 1950, or The Mediterranean World in the Age of Stalin. So traditionally, much of the early Cold War is examined geographically through the perspective of the North Atlantic, which became the NATO alliance, in contrast to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, which became the Warsaw Pact. What I want to do today is provide a different geographical lens through which to view the conflict. I have found with history, sometimes you can learn more about an old subject from taking a different perspective. The Mediterranean's history dates back to antiquity and has been the subject of many great historical works, such as Ferdinand Brudel's The Mediterranean and the Mediterranean World in the Age of Philip II, whose work inspired this episode. Brudel was probably one of the greatest historians who has ever lived. Born in France in 1902, he went on to receive his Ph.D. from the Sorbonne and after teaching in Algiers, he moved to Brazil to help establish the University of Sao Paulo. During the war, he wrote his greatest work, The Mediterranean, in a prison camp, entirely from memory with no sources, which is a massive three-volume set. So if you're interested in pre-modern or medieval history, I would recommend picking it up as it will keep you busy for a while. One of the big themes in Mediterranean history is the sea cycle from being a connecting force or bridge to being a divider or barrier. During antiquity, the Phoenicians, Carthaginians, and Greeks united the Mediterranean through trade and commerce as their merchants connected the different regions. The Roman Empire forged these different peoples and cultures into one political unit, the Roman Empire, that lasted for close to a thousand years and was one of the greatest empires in history. Rome, of course, laid the foundation of the Western civilization and by extension our contemporary world via the Western colonial experience. During the Middle Ages, the Mediterranean became a barrier as Islam had conquered the Christian kingdoms of North Africa. For centuries, the Mediterranean remained the edge of two great civilizational continental plates, Christian and Islamic. In the 19th century, the Mediterranean would once again become a bridge. However, this time for European armies, which would invade Algeria in 1830 and Tunisia in 1881. Morocco was jointly divided by Spain and France, slowly losing its sovereignty over 80 years whereas Libya was conquered by Italy in 1911. Beginning in the Cold War, the Mediterranean was still that bridge. France retained its North African holdings and considered Algeria as a part of France proper, like Lyon or Normandy, as hundreds of thousands of French had settled there. But many Algerians didn't see themselves as French, nor see Algeria as a part of France. As the Cold War would play out, the Mediterranean would once again become a barrier. We can see that today as many Africans and Arabs are fleeing current issues in Africa only to be stopped and or saved in the Mediterranean. So why study the Mediterranean in the context of the early Cold War? 
For one, the Communist parties were strong in this region and threatened American objectives of rebuilding Western Europe as a capitalist region. Second, the region was a harbinger of things to come. Greece would see the first of a long line of communist insurgencies and civil wars. We will also see the first split between communist nations, between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union. Finally, we will see the United States begin a policy of backing authoritarian regimes to achieve its perceived objectives in the Cold War. Before I begin to examine the nations of the region, I wanted to point out that although Israel and Egypt are part of the Mediterranean world, I will not be examining them for the reason that both these states became more consumed in Middle Eastern politics, and I will be examining them in a subsequent episode. To begin our journey through the Mediterranean in the age of Stalin, we will first start in Spain. If you will remember from our early episodes, a civil war had broken out in the 1930s. The roots of the Spanish Civil War date back to the 19th century. Spain was basically divided between three classes, the conservatives, who were the aristocratic landlords aligned with the Catholic Church, the liberals, who were merchants and industrialists, and finally the peasants. Most people were, of course, peasants, and the economy was primarily based around farming until the 1850s. During this period, the liberals pushed to reform and modernize Spain, attempting to institute a capitalist economy with a liberal democratic government and a limited monarchy. The Spanish aristocracy pushed back against the liberal agenda and favored an absolute monarchy. This led to an era of political instability from 1814 to 1874 that saw 12 successful coups, the rise and fall of one republic, or the first Spanish republic, and a number of Spanish monarchs ascend to the throne only to fail. By the late 1860s, more radical elements such as the anarchists and republicans began to fight against the conservatives and wished to abolish the monarchy altogether and call for more radical changes in the Spanish economy. Spain was neutral during the First World War. Afterwards, however, elements of the liberals and radical movements of Spain attempted to unsuccessfully remove the conservatives from power, yet again failing. As fears of communism grew, a military coup brought Miguel Primo de Rivera to power in 1923, and he ran Spain as a military dictatorship. However, support for the dictatorship waned by the late 1920s. By 1931, there was a little support for the monarchy in the major cities, and King Alfonso XIII gave into popular pressure for the establishment of a republic and called for municipal elections for the 12th of April 1931. The socialist and liberal republicans won almost all the provincial capitals and King Alfonso fled the country and the second Spanish Republic was established. In the beginning, the republic had broad popular support from all segments of society, right and left. However, the republic was slow to respond to violence against members of the Catholic Church throughout Madrid and in southwest Spain. The government's slow response disillusioned the right and reinforced their view that the republic was determined to persecute the church, which led to growing political instability as members on the right began to fight back, which led to major crackdowns by republican forces in places like Seville. In December, a new reformist, liberal, and democratic constitution was declared. It included strong provisions enforcing a broad secularization of the Catholic country, which many moderate committed Catholics opposed. In 1933, the right won the general elections largely due to the anarchist abstention from the vote and increased right-wing resentment of the incumbent government caused by an illegal decree confiscating the land of the aristocracy. Women's newfound right to vote also contributed to this as most women voted for the center-right parties. 
The Radical Republican Party, or RRP, a right-wing party formed a government and rolled back changes made under the previous administration. Supported by some monarchists and the fascist Falange Party, open violence broke out in the streets of Spanish cities and militancy continued to increase, reflecting a movement towards radical upheaval rather than peaceful democratic means as solutions. Over the next two years, power whipsawed back and forth between the political right and left as both sides looked to repeal the laws of the previous government, while replacing them with ever more radical new laws. Meanwhile, the Spanish military watched these events with growing fear that the nation would fall apart soon. The generals began plotting a coup in earnest. The Spanish left-wing government suspected the danger of a coup and tried to semi-exile the suspected ringleaders to Morocco and the edges of the nation. This, however, failed to stop elements of the Spanish military from launching a coup on July 18, 1936. Despite their seizing the colony of Morocco quickly, they only managed to gain control of about half the country, with the capital, Madrid, still in the hands of the Republican government. Thus began the bloody Spanish Civil War. The war was cast by the Republican sympathizers as a struggle between tyranny and freedom, and by the national supporters as communists and anarchists, red hordes, versus Christian civilization. Nationalists also claimed that they were bringing security and, and direction to an ungoverned and lawless country. Spanish politics on the left were quite fragmented. Both socialists and communists supported the republic. Anarchists had mixed opinions, but all these groups opposed the nationalists during the Civil War. The conservatives, in contrast, were united by their fervent opposition to the republican government and presented a more united front. Only two countries openly and fully supported the republic – Mexico, and the USSR. From them, especially the Soviet Union, the Republic received diplomatic support, volunteers, and the ability to purchase weapons, although other nationalities formed brigades or fought as private individuals and traveled to Spain, such as the Lincoln Battalion, most, mostly from the United States, or the Commune de Paris uh, Battalion from, from France. In many ways, these fighters were similar to the foreign fighters traveling to Syria to fight with or against ISIS today. Many of these foreign fighters would go on to become famous figures in later life, such as George Orwell, who wrote Animal Farm, and 1984. One of the greatest American writers in history fought there as well, Ernest Hemingway. A number of future politicians also fought in the conflict, such as Willie Brandt, the West German Chancellor from 1969 to 74, and Nobel Peace Prize winner, in addition to Eric Milk and Wilhelm Zeiser, both future East German secret police chiefs. The Spanish right, who became known as the Nationalists, included the fascist Falange and most conservatives and monarchist liberals. Virtually all Nationalist groups had strong Catholic convictions and supported the native Spanish clergy. The Nationalists included the, the majority of the Catholic clergy and practitioners outside of the Basque region, important elements of the army, most large landowners, and many businessmen. The nationalist regime was further supported by Portugal, Nazi Germany, and Italy, who supplied ammunition, weapons, volunteers, and logistical aid, whereas Britain and France remained neutral, not thrilled with the prospect of either a republican or nationalist government in Spain. Ultimately, with the republican forces divided and with little aid versus the aid Franco received from the Germans and Italians, the nationalists triumphed over the republicans in 1939. Spain's new government was was a one-party Falange state led by Franco. Although other conservative traditional figures continued to hold positions in government, such as monarchists, 
Franco did reestablish a legislature. The courts, all, all ministers were appointed and dismissed by Franco himself as the chief of state and government. He was effectively the only source of legislation. Local municipal councils were appointed similarly by heads of families and large corporations uh, through elections, while mayors were appointed by the government. It was thus a, one of the most centralized countries in Europe and certainly the most centralized in Western Europe. The Nationalists took control of Spain through a comprehensive and methodical war of attrition, which involved the imprisonment and execution of Spaniards found guilty of supporting the values promoted, at least in theory, by the Republic, meaning uh, regional autonomy, liberal or social democracy, free elections, and women's rights. The regime considered these enemy elements – and that the end of the Spanish Civil War, according to the regime's own figures, there were more than 270,000 men and women held in prison, and some 500,000 had fled into exile. Large numbers of those who escaped were captured and returned to Spain or interned in Nazi concentration camps as, quote, stateless enemies. It has been estimated that more than 200,000 Spaniards died in the first years of the dictatorship from 1940 to 1942 as a result of political repression hunger, and disease related to the conflict. The Civil War ravaged the Spanish economy. Infrastructure had been damaged, workers killed, and daily business severely hampered. For more than a decade after Franco's victory, the economy improved little. Franco's initially pursued a policy of being self-sufficient, cutting off almost all international trade. The policy had devastating effects, and the economy stagnated. Only black marketeers could enjoy any evident affluence. Estimates of up to 200,000 people died of starvation during the years of Francoism, a period known to many as the years of hunger. Weakened by the devastation of civil war, the country had, could not afford to become involved in a protracted European conflict. Although Franco was deeply indebted to Germany and Italy for their decisive contribution to his victory over the Republicans, he declared Spain's neutrality in the opening days of World War II. His sympathies, nevertheless, were openly with the Axis powers. He had, in fact, already joined the Anti-Comintern Pact and had signed a secret treaty of friendship with Germany in March 1939. In June 1940, the Spanish government adopted a policy of non-belligerency, which permitted German and submarines to be provisioned in Spanish ports and German airplanes to use Spanish landing strips. This stance was widely interpreted as foreshadowing Spain's entry on the side of the Axis powers into the war. Hitler and Franco had discussed this move on, on more than one occasion. The two dictators had never come to terms, however. The German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 presented Franco with a unique opportunity to participate in the conflict without a declaration of war and to get revenge for the Soviet Union's aid to the Republicans. Franco agreed to a Falange's request for the official formation of a blue division of volunteers, which reached a maximum strength of 18,000 men to fight on the Eastern Front. As the war turned in favor of the Allies in 1942, Spain replaced its pro-Axis policy with a genuinely neutral stance. Spain withdrew the blue division from the Eastern Front in November 1943. In May 1944, Spain and the Allies concluded an agreement. The Spanish government agreed to close the German consulate in Spanish Morocco and to expel German espionage agents there. In exchange for these actions, the Allies were to ship petroleum and other necessary supplies to Spain. After the war, Spain's strong ties with the Axis resulted in its international ostracism in the early years following World War II. 
Spain was not a founding member of the United Nations, and it did not become a member until 1955. Nor was Spain invited to participate in the Marshall Plan, despite its economic problems. However, during this period of isolation, the Argentine government of Juan Perón, from 1946 to 1955, provided Spain with crucial economic support. This changed with the growing Cold War. Franco's strong anti-communism naturally tilted its regime to ally with the United States. As the United States became increasingly concerned with the Soviet threat following the fall of Czechoslovakia, the Berlin blockade in 1948, and the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, the United States policymakers began also to recognize the strategic importance of the Iberian Peninsula. Furthermore, they realized that ostracism had failed and that Franco's regime was stronger than ever. The United States government took steps to normalize its political and economic relations with Spain in the years 1948 to 1950. In September 1950, President Truman signed a bill that appropriated $62.5 million in aid for Spain. In the same year, the United States supported a U.N. resolution lifting the boycott on Franco's regime and resumed full diplomatic relations with Spain in 1951. In 1953, the Pact of Madrid further symbolized the Spanish regime's rehabilitation. It also marked the end of Spanish neutrality. The pact consisted of three separate but independent agreements between Spain and the United States. It provided for mutual defense, for military aid to Spain, and for the, const the construction of, of bases there. The United States was to use these bases for a renewable 10-year period, but the bases remained under Spanish sovereignty. Although the pact did not constitute a full-fledged military alliance, it did commit the United States to support Spain's defense efforts. Furthermore, it provided Spain with a much-needed economic assistance. During the first 10 years of the Pact of Madrid, the United States sent approximately $1.5 in all kinds of aid to Spain. Spain's European neighbors were less willing than the United States to modify their aversion to Franco's authoritarian rule. The West European members of the NATO vetoed efforts to include Spain. Spain's applications for association with the European Community, or EC, were also repeatedly rejected. So, in summation, we can see the United States moved to support a despotic and even fascist state in order to bolster its position via the Soviet Union. Clearly supporting a nation like Spain flew in the face of, of the Wilsonian rhetoric Truman was using to preach about the rights of man. The greatest Mediterranean power of the region was France. France had a significant presence as well in North Africa, as we mentioned earlier. France ruled most of Northwest Africa, the continent, with colonies in Indochina, South America, small islands in the South Pacific, Madagascar, and a few islands in the West Indies. However, France was a crippled and humiliated great power. In the space of a few years, France had gone from being a global superpower to an occupied state. France had fallen to the Germans in 1940 in the space of six weeks. The vaunted Maginot Line was simply bypassed, and the French failed to stop Hitler's legions, who laid low the proud and mighty French army. This humiliation was worsened when the Germans forced the French to surrender in the same rail car that the Germans had surrendered to the Allies in in 1918 at the end of the First World War. The northern and Atlantic regions of France, including Paris, were occupied by Germany, with Italy occupying a small portion of the nation as well. The rest of France was ruled by the collaborator government of Vichy France who attempted to cooperate with the Axis powers in the hope that they would return territory to France and that they would find a place in the new Nazi-dominated Europe. 
The Vichy went so far as to send 11,000 French volunteers to fight in Russia as the SS Charlemagne Division. They were one of the last German units to see action during World War II when they participated in the defense of central Berlin and the Führer bunker. The Vichy French even helped the Germans in rounding up their fellow French Jews during the Holocaust and transporting them to Germany to the concentration camps. Despite the best efforts of resistance fighters and the Free French Forces, France's liberation was only made possible by American, British, and Canadian forces, and France barely escaped becoming an allied administrative territory like West Germany. The Americans and British waited until the last moment to diplomatically recognize the Free French government, hoping that the Vichy government might change sides. As France was liberated, Free French forces and the French resistance fell upon the Vichy collaborators, informers, and black marketeers with a vengeance. There was an estimated 10,000 summary executions. Thousands of women had their heads shaved for being, quote, horizontal collaborators and for having German boyfriends. Some of these people were, were, though, innocent and were caught up in the communist effort to revolutionize the nation. These actions were not approved by the Central Party, but were carried out by local communists working on their own. Policemen, factory owners, businessmen, and aristocrats were all targeted from 1944 to 1945 as enemies of the people, even if they had supported the resistance during the occupation. After the war, economically, France was decimated. Half a million French had died in the conflict, and many farms, towns, and cities were in ruins. Industrial production was only 38% of what it had been in 1938. 460,000 homes were destroyed, and a further 1.9 million were damaged. France's infrastructure was also heavily damaged. For example, 70% of France's locomotives had been destroyed in the war. Basic services like electricity, water, gas, and sanitation were barely running. Even in Paris, both water and electricity was infrequent. Caloric intake had dropped to between 15 to 1,800 calories for the average person. Moreover, with the horrible winter of 46-47, was followed by a drought, which led to one of the worst wheat harvests since the days of Napoleon. Adding to French political humiliation, France was invited to none of the big post-war conferences like Yalta and Potsdam, a slight de Gaulle and many of the free French would never forgive. On the other hand, the Americans and British did allow the French to occupy part of Germany, but not the zones she wanted, like the industrial Ruhr with its factories and coal mines, but parts of the Rhineland with very little industrial value. France wanted to see Germany permanently divided with regions ceded to France. However, the Americans saw things differently, and the French were powerless to stop the Americans from rebuilding West Germany. The Americans saw Germany as a vital piece to rebuilding Europe's economy and as a buffer state to the Soviet Union. Like Russia, France was fearful of a revived Germany, which had invaded France three times in the last 70 years. Complicating matters further, there was a political split in the nation between the forces of the Free French, led by de Gaulle on the center-right, and that of the French resistance, led by the communists. The communists wanted to establish a new revolutionary state. During the occupation and after the war, many French joined the Communist Party out of desperation, cynicism, and a desire to try something new. Liberal democracy, especially in reference to France, had failed catastrophically in the 1930s. In the French election of 1946, the communists achieved 28.8% of the vote. With some 900,000 members, the French communists had four cabinet ministers and the new French government, including the Minister of Defense. The American Undersecretary of State, Dean Atkinson, believed that a communist takeover of France was imminent. 
De Gaulle and the provisional French government wanted to restore the French centralized state and the bureaucracy. However, the French Third Republic, which was blamed for the defeat in 1940, was ended in favor of creating a new French government. All of the former members of the Third Republic who had voted in favor of establishing the Vichy government in 1940 were banned from serving in government for life. However, only 5,000 French bureaucrats were removed from office. Thus, the myth of the French resistance was born. De Gaulle declared that the vast majority of French had either joined the resistance or joined the Free French Forces. Those who did not actively resist occupation detested the Vichy regime and German occupation. Historically, however, we know this is false, as thousands of French actively worked with the Germans and the Vichy regime. De Gaulle wanted the new Fourth Republic to have a strong president similar to the United States. De Gaulle believed France's lack of a strong executive was the reason the nation fell in 1940. However, many of the French disagreed, and France became a parliamentary republic as before. De Gaulle was also unhappy with political parties forming as he saw them as divisive. Therefore, he stepped down in the belief that the French people would panic and call him back and that he would get what he wanted. De Gaulle was right. This would happen, and, but not in the time frame he had expected. It wouldn't be until 1958 when he was called out of retirement. Meanwhile, the French people had approved of a new government by national referendum despite de Gaulle's objections. The Fourth Republic in many ways was designed to ward off the danger of a revolution by the communists and the danger of a dictatorship by de Gaulle. De Gaulle was right, though. The French Fourth Republic would go on to be very unstable, having 21 different ruling governments from 1946 to 1958. That's an average of 1.7 governments a year for 12 years. The system rested upon a process of parliamentary rules, party bosses, and political coalitions. Despite the rise and fall of individual ministers, these alliances held power for longer periods of time under the surface. In the end, though, the Fourth Republic proved to be even more unstable and inefficient than the government it was replacing, the Third Republic. Despite French humiliations at the hands of the Americans, France desperately needed American money and protection. In the summer of 1946, France only had 600,000 troops, which may seem like a lot, but as you will remember, the Soviets had 4 million. So France saw the NATO alliance and America's atomic shield as the only possible guarantor of France's immediate security against any possible Soviet invasion. America did make loans and aid available as well through the an ad hoc agreements and the Marshall Plan, which we examined in our last episode. But this aid didn't come without strings attached. The Americans insisted on the French balancing their budget, keeping inflation under control, and opening up their market to free trade. All barriers to American exports and investment had to be removed. The French, for example, were forced to remove the limits on the number of films imported from America. The big example of the period was Coca-Cola, which the French saw as the essence of capitalism and the American way of life. Coke's president at the time, James Farley, even said that every bottle of Coca-Cola was a weapon in the global struggle against communism. Obviously, the French Communist Party vigorously opposed Coca-Cola. They were joined by the French wine, fruit juice, and mineral water companies. The matter went to the French courts, and under American pressure, the courts ruled that the contents of Coca-Cola were neither fraudulent nor a health risk, allowing Coke to enter the French market. The Americans also made it clear to the French that the communists had to be removed from office for the funds to be made available, and they quickly were. But there was a fierce resentment of the United States and much of French society during this period. 
Le Monde, for example, as early as 1946, supported taking a third course between siding with either the Americans or Soviets. By the early 1950s, graffiti began to show up around U.S. bases with, quote, U.S. go home. When, U- when U.S. General Ridgway arrived, he was greeted by riots in 1952. With the removal of limits and barriers to U.S. goods and movies, music and television, many French intellectuals worried that France would become a cultural colony of the United States. The other major policy that France instituted to help rebuild the nation was to loosen immigration restrictions. France calculated that it needed to attract workers to rebuild its industrial base and to have the necessary workforce to man the economy once the recovery had taken place. It should be remembered that France had lost roughly 7 million dead, wounded, or missing in action in the two world wars in the space of 20 years. Therefore, from 1946 to 1975, in what became known as the first great modern wave of immigration to France, some 3.4 million people immigrated to France. The majority of these immigrants came from Spain, Poland, Italy, and Belgium, although there was a significant number of Vietnamese who came after the fall of Indochina in 1954. However, most were European and predominantly Catholic, so they were easily absorbed. This would be in contrast with the second wave of immigration, which began after 1975, which has been predominantly from France's former colonies in Africa and Algeria, who are predominantly Muslim, which France has had struggled with absorbing. During this period, France controlled the regions of contemporary Tunisia, Algeria, and part of Morocco with Spain. We will focus greater attention on the Algerian battle for liberation in a later episode. But at this point, Algeria was considered a part of metropole France with a large French settler population of close to a million. So it was not a colony but a province in France, sort of like how Alaska or Hawaii are part of the U.S. but outside of the mainland. The French considered the native Algerians, along with most of their colonial subjects, as inferior, lacking civilization and culture. As such, Algerian subjects had fewer rights in comparison to French citizens. Despite the destruction of France and the economic and political struggles of the post-war period, France and Paris remained one of the greatest intellectual centers of the world. The French education system had been one of the finest of the world. Professions such as teaching, lecturing, the liberal arts, advertising, journalism, and artists were known as the intellectual professions. Unlike in contemporary America, where being a teacher is looked down upon in some segments of society, in France at this time, being a teacher was a great honor and greatly respected in society. Intellectuals were also held in a greater status in French society as well. The immediate post-war period was dominated by Jean-Paul Sartre, existentialism, and Marxism, which remained a strong intellectual current. Sartre sought to find meaning in life in the chaos created by the German occupation. In this moral chaos, he argued it was impossible to cling to the so-called eternal values, either Catholic or Kantian. Each individual had the freedom to choose, but also the responsibility to take to make the right choice. Sartre rejected the neutral or social determinism. Each individual had to create and define themselves by the decisions he or she made. Or, as they explained in the movie T2 Judgment Day, no fate but what you make. Therefore, Sartre believed people were nothing more than the sum total of their life choices. This philosophy was not embraced by everyone in France, but it was a cult of action that condemned wartime passivity and had a dedicated following and influence in France. Much of the press and conservative culture of France criticized existentialism as amoral and nihilistic. 
Communism and existentialism, however, had an ambivalent relationship. On the one hand, Sartre was worried by Marxism historical determinism, its denial of subjectivity, individual choice, and its subordination of culture to the needs of the state in building a socialist society. The communists dismissed existentialism as bourgeois egoism, oblivious to the forces ruling history or the demands of building socialism. However, the failure to launch his own political movement, the Revolutionary Democratic Union, led Sartre to move closer to the French Communist Party, not as a member but as a fellow traveler, or someone who declined membership with the Communist Party but sympathized with many of the aims of the communists. Sartre took part in the communist-led peace movement and visited the Soviet Union on a number of occasions in the early 1950s. Sartre's support of the communists provoked an angry split with Camus and Aron, uh, other leading members of the existentialist movement. Sartre himself had a falling out with the Soviets as he pro protested Soviet re re repression in Eastern Europe, especially after the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. Sartre was also deeply influential amongst the anti-colonial forces of the period, influencing other uh, philosophical figures like Franz Fanon, who wrote extensively about the psychological effects of colonialism on people of color and was deeply influential to the liberation and anti-colonial struggle. Fanon believed that consistent existentialist commitment to choosing one's character through one's actions means that decolonization can only happen when the native takes up his or her responsibility, subjecthood, and refuses to occupy the position of violence-absorbing passive victim and uses violence instead to liberate themselves from the violent colonial oppressors or to fight fire with fire. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 10, Part 1, Cold War in the Mediterranean. Join us for Part 2 as we examine post-war Italy and Yugoslavia. In Italy, we will be examining the failure of fascism and Italy's complex politics of the post-war period. We'll even review the CIA's first major operation in helping to influence the Italian election of 1948. In Yugoslavia, we will examine the formation of the country in the aftermath of World War I, and we will examine the first major split in the communist movement between Stalin and Tito. So make sure you catch our next episode on June the 15th, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast to find our latest news and Cold War content, or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcasts at gmail.com. Cold War Podcast, one word. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.